Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. A youth minister that I knew in high school, uh, when I was in high school I should say, uh, liked to tell the story of the first car that he ever owned. And he said that uh, to his knowledge there was never anything resembling maintenance ever done to this car. Uh, he said, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, there's a chance that, you know, my dad would steal it from me every now and then and go get the, change the oil in it, but nothing like that ever happened uh, on his watch. And so that had gone on for a few years while he was in high school, and one day, after a couple of years of that, he, he realized that, uh, just looking at his car one day, that there was a little bit of rust starting to, to show around uh, one of the wheels. And so that, you know, piqued his interest, got him a little concerned, and so he, he uh, crawled under his car, and when he did, he realized that there was rust everywhere. It had been, it had been uh, slowly spreading over years while he was not doing anything to his car, and, and by the time that rust actually began to show, it was too late. Uh, what had been going on under the surface for quite some time uh, was finally starting to show, and it was, um, it was not a good thing. It was causing... Um, all sorts of problems. We have a few weeks left in this series we've been in uh, during, during the fall that we've called A Man Like Us, where we've been walking through the section of Scripture that focuses in on the life of the prophet Elijah. New Testament author James, the brother of Jesus, reflects on this section of Scripture. He makes the point to his readers that Elijah was a human being, simply a person who God used in powerful ways. What was special about Elijah was not anything in himself. What was special about Elijah was the God who was at work in him. And we've seen over this series that God shows up in powerful ways, demonstrating that he is the one true God who is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. And yet throughout this section of scripture, if you've been following along with us, we've also seen the, the consistent appearance of an adversary, of King Ahab. It would be a little bit of an exaggeration to say that you can boil this section of Scripture down to Elijah versus Ahab. It's not quite that, but, but that's not much of an exaggeration. We've consistently seen King Ahab do evil and then usually be confronted by Elijah or some other prophet. And, and sometimes he's repentant, sometimes he feels bad, and, but sometimes not so much. Ahab never quite is able to internalize the lesson that God is in charge of all things and is never quite fully able to submit himself to him. And over the past two chapters especially, we've seen the theme building of judgment coming Ahab's way for his sins. God says that Ahab is going to lose his kingdom. He's going to have his reign taken away from him and from his descendants. He's been told that he is going to lose his life not because God is capricious, but because of his consistent rejection of the ways of God. And that comes to a head this morning. The rust that has been forming under the surface over the last few chapters finally begins to show, and when, the, when it does show, it's too late. We've seen over the, these past few chapters, Ahab continues to be blown back and forth between whatever wind seems to be strongest. 
when God confronts him in his sin, like we saw at the end of chapter 21 last week, sometimes he feels bad. But that doesn't always last all that long. All the way up until the very end of his life, Ahab remains unsure. Unsure if he should listen to the voice of God or if he should listen to the voices of those around him. Unsure if he should recognize God as the final authority over all things or if maybe he should listen to the voices around him who tell him that he's the king and he can do whatever he wants. Unsure if he should listen to the warnings he's been receiving from God's prophets or if maybe he should just ignore them. And that wavering, that lack of certainty, that lack of conviction, that refusal to decide whether or not God can be trusted will ultimately bring about his demise, which we'll see in chapter 22 this morning. If you remember back to 1 Kings chapter 20 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, Israel defeated the nation of Aram in battle. And part of the terms of surrender from the Arameans was that they would give a few ter- some territory back to the nation of Israel that they had taken away from them in earlier battles. So as we get here to the beginning of chapter 22, we will see that that transfer of territory hasn't taken place. Three years have passed, and they still haven't taken possession of this land. The nation of Israel hasn't. And so King Ahab decides that he should do something about it. He goes to the king of Judah, to King Jehoshaphat, and asks him if he would join him in battle as they go and try to conquer this territory. Remember, at this point in the history of the nation of Israel, the kingdom's divided. You have Judah, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, forming the southern kingdom. At this point, King Jehoshaphat's the king of that kingdom. And in the north, the other ten tribes where Ahab is king, the kingdom of Israel. So, if King Jehoshaphat of Judah agrees to support Ahab, and they're gathered, they gather together to plan their battle strategy, and in the midst of that planning, they decide that they should seek some counsel. Maybe they should find a prophet to see what God thinks of all this. So Ahab calls for his 400 royal prophets to see if they think they should go into battle, and, and Ahab finds unanimous support. Everyone thinks it's a great idea. All 400 prophets speak in unison, but King Jehoshaphat gets the sense that maybe these royal prophets are just telling Ahab what he wants to hear. At the end of the day, he's the one signing their paychecks. So let's read the reaction of King Jehoshaphat. We're going to pick up at verse 7, 1 Kings 22. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here, whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered, Jehoshaphat, that's King Ahab, answers, There's still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. Because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imla, at once. I don't want to dwell on it longer than we should, but, but there is some comedy in this scene. Ahab, who we have clearly seen over the last few chapters, is not a good guy has all his yes-men around him telling him what he wants to hear, that they all think he's going to have overwhelming success, and yet King Jehoshaphat, who's a little more spiritually attuned, we could say, than, than King Ahab, gets the sense that, that maybe things are not as they seem. And this is a place in the Old Testament where things are a little more confusing to us as we read in an English translation uh, than they are in the original Hebrew. But if you will, hang with me for a second. We can talk about why that matters. 
If you have a Bible open in front of you, you will see there in verse 5 that Jehoshaphat asks if we can seek the counsel of the Lord. And if you're looking at a Bible in front of you right now, you'll probably see that it's like the words that we have on the screen right now, where LORD is in all capital letters, or something close to that. And our English translations do that when they're in the Old Testament when they're trying to show us that what is the word that is being translated there is Yahweh, the proper name of God, the Lord. Jehoshaphat tells Ahab that they should go to the God of Israel, the God who redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt, who gave them his law on Mount Sinai to see if the Lord, if Yahweh, endorses this battle that they're planning to enter into. And verse 6 tells us that the 400 royal prophets come in and they are fully in favor of going to battle. They unanimously say there at the end of verse 6, you can see on the screen there, Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Now in English, that's the same word. It's still, it's Lord again in the very next verse. But if you'll notice on the screen, Lord is not in all capital letters. That's because in in the original Hebrew, the word that's being translated there is the Hebrew word Adonai, the general, generic Hebrew word for a lord, a ruler, a master, something like that. Jehoshaphat has asked for a word from the God of Israel, and these prophets have returned with a word from a lord, just not the lord. And that difference is significant. Imagine you had a health issue. Let's say, for example, you were having trouble, something was wrong with your lungs, and you went to the doctor to see some counsel. You want to talk to a pulmonologist, which is what Google tells me a lung doctor is called, and, and you go to them and the, you receive back, well, a doctor thinks this is what is wrong with you. And you think, well, that could be good. That, that could be good advice, but no one's told me whether or not this is a doctor who specializes in the specific issue that I'm dealing with right now. Maybe it's a lung doctor. Maybe it's just some random person that they found on the street who claimed to be a doctor. I don't know. You'd maybe want some clarification on the advice that you're being given. And that's what Jehoshaphat does. He asks in verse 7, Is there a prophet of the Lord? Is there a prophet of Yahweh? Is there a prophet of the God of Israel that we can seek out? Ahab says there in verse 8, the verses that we read, he says, well, there is this one prophet we could go to, but I don't like him. I hate him because as opposed to these 400 prophets that are in front of us right now who are my yes men and always tell me exactly what I want to hear, he has the nerve to speak against me. If we return back to the doctor analogy I just, I just used, let's say you get this medical advice from, for your lungs from a doctor. You don't know what kind of doctor. And so you ask, well, is there a, is there a pulmonologist that I can talk to? And you have a friend who's been smoking for the last 30 years tell you, well, I do know this one guy, but you're not going to like him. He always tells me what I don't want to hear. That's essentially the role Ahab is playing in this verse. He's consistently chosen to align himself against the ways of God and doesn't like the fact that a prophet from the God of Israel is willing to deliver him news that he doesn't want to hear. So we're going to jump down to verse 13 and read the response of this prophet Micaiah. It says the, the text says, The messenger who had gone down to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. 
When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead or not? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. The prophet Micaiah essentially walks into a party. All these prophets gathered before the two kings are certain of victory just as Israel experienced the last time they went into battle back in chapter 20. If you have a Bible open in front of you, we didn't, we didn't read this part, but you can see there in verse 11, one of these prophets, Zedekiah, made some horns out of iron. He thought that was a good object lesson to demonstrate just how thoroughly Israel's victory was going to be in battle. But the difference between here and what we saw in chapter 20 is that in chapter 20 we had a very clear prediction from God about what was going to happen. We don't get anything like that here. Micaiah shows up. We read the verses. He's given the advice that, hey, everyone else is in agreement on this. You should probably just go, go along to get along. And at first, Micaiah does just that, at least based on the words there in verse 15. If we just read the words on the page, it would seem like good news for Ahab. And yet, for some reason, Ahab can tell that Micaiah's response is not genuine. And we don't know what that is. Maybe it was a, Micaiah delivered this report in a sarcastic tone and that just set, him off, set Ahab off. Maybe Ahab was just so used to hearing bad news from Micaiah that as soon as he heard good news, he thought, well, that can't be right. He's got to give me bad news if he's actually going to be here and, and go along. There's no way he's going to show up and just go along with the crowd. We don't know. What we do know is that Micaiah shows up and kills the mood, states that Israel is going to be scattered without a leader. Ahab's going to lose his life in battle. The threats that have been predicted by Elijah and other prophets over the last few chapters is going to come to pass. The rust that's been under the surface throughout Ahab's reign is going to begin to show, and that's going to bring his downfall. And yet the way Micaiah explains all of that is, is a little strange. From verse 19 down to verse 23, he gives this description of this scene that Ahab is witnessing and how it, it is playing out from God's perspective. And if we're being honest, the scene that Micaiah describes is a little unsettling. Now, why would God send a deceiving spirit? Like, is that allowed? 
I think there's a few things we need to keep in mind as we read those verses. First, we need to remember this is not the first time Ahab has heard that his life is in danger because of his refusal to obey the commands of God. And it's not the first time he will refuse to listen. Over the last few chapters, we have seen multiple instances where prophets of God give the warning to Ahab that his sin against God is going to cost him his kingship and it's going to cost him his life. We even saw last week at the end of chapter 21 that when Ahab shows the first hint of repentance, God is willing to show grace. And yet that repentance doesn't last. And therefore the downfall that has been warned about will come. And this is the last chance Ahab is going to have to hear God's warning. And he does not listen. And yet God is gracious. Well, what Micaiah describes in these verses is not God conniving to destroy Ahab in the most gruesome way he can come up with because he thinks it will be entertaining as he watches in heaven. It is grace from God that Ahab is given this warning that he is being deceived by these prophets. It was grace that Ahab was not wiped off the map at the end of the story we looked at last week in chapter 21. And yet, despite that experience of grace, Ahab continues to align himself against God and will experience that, the result of that. And next, we, we need to look at what kind of spirits described there. The spirit there in verse 22 is not a, described as a demon or something like that. It's a spirit that says it will be a deceiving spirit. The spirit says it will work through these prophets that are Ahab's yes-men to give them the word that if Ahab listens to, it will bring about his downfall. This spirit is the means through which God works to accomplish what he has said he would do. Because Ahab, because his prophets have turned against God's ways, God enables them to continue in that disobedience so that they may experience the consequences of that decision. And that news isn't received well. This party predicting complete victory won't listen. They have Micaiah put in prison. He's being dragged away. As he's being dragged away, he gives one last warning that they will know soon enough that his words are true. I take the time to walk through all of the messiness going on in those verses because of what it reveals about God. God is sovereign over all things. And God's sovereignty includes judgment on sin. For those who align themselves against God, whether it's Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, whether it's Ahab here in this section of Scripture, whether it's those Paul describes at the beginning of the book of Romans, God sometimes hands them over to experience the reality of the rebellion that they've chosen. And God's judgment here is not forcing Ahab into a corner where he has no choice but to dis disobey God and thus making him the victim. Every step of the way, we have seen God be more gracious with Ahab than he deserves. And time and time again, Ahab has rejected that. Even here. Even when it's made abundantly clear what is about to happen if he goes into battle. Paul will use the language in some of his letters that he hands someone over to Satan. And that language doesn't mean Paul's condemning someone for all time, but it's an acknowledgement that this person has chosen to walk away from God and therefore I'm allowing them to experience those consequences with the hope that they will realize the futility of the decision that they have made and they will repent. And this message from Micaiah here in 1 Kings 22 is doing the same thing. 
And the lesson for us from this is that God's word is sure. Ahab puts on a good show that he doesn't believe what Micaiah is saying, and we'll see how that plays out in the rest of this chapter. But what we should see from this text is that we cannot ignore the ways of God and not expect it to impact us. There are consequences to sin, consequences for rejecting God's call in our life, and yet God's desire is to be gracious. He desires to show grace to Ahab. He desires to show grace across the Old Testament to his people who are continually rebellious. He desires to show grace when he sends his son to die on the cross. And confronting that reality can cause us to either dig in our heels and continue in our rebellion, or it can cause us to recognize the redemption available to those who repent before God. And the rest of this chapter, we'll see how Ahab answers that question. We're going to jump down and read it from verse 29. It says, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, Surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel, King Ahab, between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I, I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged. The king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot, and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through his army. Every man to his town. Every man to his land. Excuse me. If we, were, if we could hypothetically picture Ahab's emotions based on his actions in verses 26 and 27 of this chapter where he has Micaiah put in prison for having the nerve to speak against him, we, we might expect that he's pretty confident. I mean, he's got 400 prophets telling him this is a good idea. He's got one prophet telling him it's a bad idea, 400 to 1. It would seem like pretty, pretty good odds, like, like the odds are in your favor. His words sure sounded like he didn't believe, in, believe what Micaiah was saying, but his actions seemed to show something different. Instead of wearing his normal royal robes as they go into battle, he has King Jehoshaphat, the other king, put on all his royal attire, and, and Ahab dresses just like a normal everyday soldier trying to blend in. And again, that we can't help but see a little humor in that. Let's say hypothetically a friend convinced you to go skydiving with them. And as you get up into the plane, they say to you, hey, I'm 100% confident in this. I know that this is all going to work, but how about you do it and I'll just stay in the plane and we'll back up once we get, get down to the ground. It would maybe, you know, betray, their, word, their actions might betray their words a little bit right there. And I don't know what's going on in Ahab's mind and heart as they head into battle, but it definitely seems like this king who has spent his entire reign trying to ignore, trying to work around the commands of God, thinks he can avoid what God is doing if he disguises himself in battle. 
And yet God's plans are not stopped. Notice how the narrator describes things there in verses 31 to 33. We learn the entire army is only concerned with finding King Ahab. And at first they think Jehoshaphat is Ahab and they chase after him, but then they realize that he isn't. And as we're reading along, we might think that that Ahab's getting away. But there in verse 34, an unnamed person, we we don't know who they are. They draw their bow. The text says they draw their bow at random. And they just so happen to hit a tiny gap in Ahab's armor in the one spot where it will leave him severely wounded. Ahab has tried to hide, but he has not escaped from God. The rust permeating his life has begun to show, and he meets his end. When that happens, what Micaiah said would happen comes to pass. Without a leader, Israel scatters, and Ahab's reign ends. The narrator sums it up for us in the last few verses, starting in verse 37. So the king, King Ahab, died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed, and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the the palace he built and adorned with ivory, and the cities he fortified... Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Ahab rested with his ancestors, and Ahaziah his son succeeded him as king. Ahab meets the end that has been predicted over him for the last few chapters. His opposition to the calling of God costs him his life and leaves God's people without a leader. And yet that's not everything we learn in these last few verses. If you look there, verses 39 and 40 acknowledge. The narrator says, I haven't told you everything that could be said about the life of King Ahab. We haven't heard everything over these past seven chapters where King Ahab's been a major player. And from what is mentioned in those couple verses, apparently some pretty significant events have been left out. A palace adorned with ivory would have been a pretty impressive construction project. Fortified cities are a big deal. Fortified cities give strength and security to the people living within those cities, and yet, in the eyes of the narrator, in the eyes of God, those accomplishments don't matter that much. They just get mentioned in passing. They're just a throwaway comment as the narrator wraps up Ahab's life. So why would you just mention those details in passing? Well, these events that sound like they would have been pretty significant by the world's standards must not matter to the story God is telling. The book of 1 Kings is not giving us chronological history, it is giving us theological history. All the accomplishments of Ahab, building palaces, strengthening cities, making the nation of Israel a, a, a more successful uh, a kingdom, a nation does not matter all that much, is pretty unimportant compared to the fact that Ahab had rejected the ways of God. In the eyes of the world, Ahab would have been a successful king who did great things, built a palace for himself, strengthened his kingdom, did great things, and just happened to meet an unfortunate end on the battlefield. In the eyes of God, Ahab was a failure because he used his reign over God's people to advance his own cause as opposed to using it to to serve the people that God had called him to serve. And that's where the story of Ahab ends. 
His rebellion leads to the scattering of Israel completely adrift, for now a ship without a captain. And yet I find it really interesting that there's a phrase in this story that gets picked up by the gospel writers when they're talking about Jesus. That phrase, sheep without a shepherd. There in verse 17, Micaiah proclaims that after battle against the Arameans, Israel will be scattered. They will be like sheep without a shepherd. The king gone, no leadership, no idea of where to go, who's in charge, what's next. Later in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel will use that phrase to describe the nation of Israel in exile, having been failed by their leaders, looking forward to a time when God would appoint someone who could be a good shepherd to lead His people. And when Jesus comes, Matthew describes in chapter 9, verse 36, that Jesus looks and he sees that the people, he has compassion on them. You can see on the words on the screen, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The problem Israel faced at the death of King Ahab had never truly been been solved. Sin had led to God's people being scattered. Jesus came so that his people might be gathered together. God's purposes were not just to defeat evil, to bring an end to the reign of a bad king like Ahab, but to set things right through his son, who is a good shepherd. The failures of those like Ahab, the failures of every other figure that we find in the Old Testament, the failures of you and of me, are able to be set right through the coming of Jesus. God's word is sure. Not only when he says that he will deal with sin, but also when he says that he will send someone who will restore his people. And that word comes to its fulfillment in Christ. He came that we who have been scattered by sin might be gathered together under him. He is our leader who will never fail. He's our good shepherd who draws us near, who has good intentions for us. He desires to make all things new, even you and me. And so, do not hesitate to draw near. Do not hesitate to come to the one who desires to show you grace and love and restoration and life because of what he has done for you in his death and his resurrection. Sin scatters us in in any number of directions. Jesus comes to gather us in near to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good to us. We thank you that when we, when we had run away, when we had gone to a far-off land, that you waited for us to come back, that you sent your Son so that we might come near. We thank you for your constant goodness and love and faithfulness to us. God, for those of us that need to be reminded of that this morning, we ask that you would draw us near to know your goodness, to know your faithfulness to us, to know that you have not gone anywhere, that you remain near, and you want to draw us close. For those who have never experienced your love and your grace, Father, I ask that they would do that even today. That they would know that you're good. They would know that you love them, have sent your Son so that they might have life in you. So that they might be gathered in as a part of your
people. God, we thank you that you're good and you're faithful to us. Thank you for your son who is near to us even now. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.